0: Uh, As you know, I work in a kindergarten, and working in a kindergarten, I get two very different perspectives on the children as they're learning. Since I'm not the teacher, I spend most of my time supporting the learning of the class. Usually this means that the kids are sitting on the carpet in the room facing the teacher, facing the smart board, and I'm behind them, um, sitting in a chair, making sure they're paying attention and following the rules. Of the two um, perspectives, this is my primary perspective, and it's also the more negative perspective. And not just because, as the prep ladies will tell you, when you sit behind a group of four- and five- and six-year-olds, it's nothing but an unbroken horizon of butt cracks. It's all you see. Nothing but ill-fitting pants as far as the eye can see. As you can imagine, it's not my most favorite perspective of the children, but it's not just the butt cracks. When I'm given this perspective of the kids, I tend to have the mindset that, that each lovely five-year-old is a, a rule-breaking waiting to happen. I become hyper-vigilant against speaking without raising hands or staring at your shoes instead of the smart board or poking your neighbors or, of course, picking your nose. I expect the worst out of them when I'm in this perspective. I expect the worst, and I'm ready to crack down on them for each little violation. Now, this is my job, but it's really not the best way to view a child or anyone, for that matter. But there's another perspective, and I'm... Fortunate to have it, since not all program assistants get to have it. Every day I'm lucky enough to play teacher and run the calendar and morning message portion of the day. Reinforcing math concepts and time concepts, uh, rhyming and spelling and reading and other literacy concepts. It's, it's my favorite part of the day. During this part of the daily routine, my perspective is entirely different. I'm not behind them, watching anonymous little butt cracks pick their nose. <laughs> Instead, I'm in front of them, and the view I get is faces, tiny faces full of smiles and wonder and delight. I no longer expect the worst out of them. Instead, I'm attentive to them at their best, curious and thoughtful and proud and engaged children, watching them fill their brains with important education right before my eyes. It really is an honor and a blessing. Sure, they still call out with raising their hands, And they still get more interested in their shoes than my lesson. And sometimes they do forget what a Kleenex is for. And I still see all these things. But I'm not focused on those things. I have a different perspective. I expect the best out of them and not the worst. I see them for who they really are. Not a collection of rule breakers and disgusting conduct. But a treasure trove of childlike wonder. Who I get to laugh with and learn with and love. See... It's all a matter of perspective. Do I see the worst in them and expect misbehavior and disappointment and failure? Or do I see the best in them and expect goodness and wonder and success? That's my choice. I get to choose my perspective. Our passage this morning finds our heroes, the apostles, responding to a newly fulfilled promise of Jesus, a promise that they likely wish he never would have made, and that's the promise of persecution. True, they have been delivered from imprisonment, for now, by the Holy Spirit's words of power, as well as the general goodness of the miracle that they've performed. But they are now, like Jesus, enemies of their own people and enemies of the state. They know how this injustice will end with crosses, just like their Lord and their Savior. And so it becomes a matter of perspective. How will they view their suffering? How will they view their mission? How will they view the call of their Master? What was the perspective of the early church in the face of suffering and oppression and hardships? Let's read Acts 4:23 to 31 As soon as they were freed, Peter and John returned to the other believers and told them what the leading priests and elders had said. When they heard the report, all the believers lifted their voices together in prayer to God. O Sovereign Lord, Creator of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. We had read that earlier in Psalm 146. You spoke long ago by the Holy Spirit through your ancestor David, your servant, saying, Why were the nations so angry? Why did the people waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepared for battle, and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. In fact, this happened here, in this very city. For Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant, whom you anointed. But everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. And now, O Lord, hear their threats and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After this prayer, the meeting place shook, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Then they preached the word of God with boldness. That is the longest prayer recorded in the book of Acts. And there are a few important things to learn from it. But first I want to talk about how the prayer is offered. It's the first glimpse we have as to the perspective offered by this passage. Question for you, who is it that says this prayer? When I first read the passage, without even thinking about it, I mentally assumed that it was Peter praying. And I'm I'm sure some of you did too. Because it's always Peter saying everything all the time in these early chapters of Acts. It's Peter who steps up in Acts 1, 2, 3, and 4 to deliver powerful speeches. But that's not what the text says. Rather, after reporting the entirety of the account with the crippled beggar to their companions, the entire group, the entire group raised their voices together to God. And that is a beautiful distinction. A clear portrait of absolute unity. The Greek word translated together, you knew that there would be Greek coming, right? Well, here it is. The Greek word translated together is homothymodon. It's a word that Luke really enjoys. It's a word, it's used 12 times in all of the New Testament, and 11 of those times are used by Luke in Acts. So it's a word that he favors. Notice the conspicuous prefix on the word homothymodon. What do you hear first? Homo. It's a prefix that means simply same. Same. So, in other words, homothymodon, they prayed homothymidon, they were together. They were the same. They were same in belief, same in agreement, same in prayer, same in request, and same in standing before their God. They were homothymidon, completely united. To Luke, homothymidon strongly communicates the central identifying factor of the early church, that they were absolutely, totally, completely dedicated to its very core to being of one accord. To being together. Peter and John, clearly leaders of the early movement of Jesus' followers, are not recorded as the ones who prayed on this occasion. It would make sense if they were the ones who prayed this prayer, but it's not. Instead, they are merely two out of a huge company of companions lifting their voices together, equals, partners, family. That's the portrait we have of this prayer. They are doing it together. Everything that happened to Peter and to John and the formerly crippled beggar, who is probably there with him as well, everything that happened to Peter and John happened to those who are hearing about it for the first time. Everything that happened to them, even though the rest of the group was nowhere around, they're hearing all of this for the first time. If it happens to Peter and John, it happens to them. They are a body. And if something happens to one part of the body, your whole body feels it. When you stub your toe, it is a tiny little part But the rest of your body can't help but feel that. And you feel nothing else until it's it's done. That's just a toe. But when something happens to the body, the rest of the body feels it. And that's true of Peter and John as well. And so they raise their voice together and they seek their father together and are strengthened and encouraged because they are together. Homothymidon. This is the one thing that Jesus prayed for in regards to his followers after he is gone. Jesus' prayer for those who would come after him, it's a beautiful prayer. It's really the only prayer we have that Jesus offered for those who would come after him. And his prayer is for what? Unity. Togetherness. Homothymidon. And here, at the first suggestion of suffering and persecution, we are given a portrait of believers coming together in prayer. It's so easy to miss that little detail, but it's so crucial not to. This was not one guy praying for everyone. This is everybody praying together of one accord. Now, whether that means one guy said it and everybody else was shouting out amens and hosannas, kind of like when we have prayer time. When I listen to a prayer, the thing that helps me be engaged in that prayer is to close my eyes so I'm focusing and to give verbal assent to whatever is being said. So the little mm mm-hmms and the amens and the whatever... I find that incredibly helpful. And when I'm praying, if I'm praying in front of everyone and it's just a silent room, it feels like me just giving more sermon time. When I hear the yeses and the okays and the mm-hmms, not only can I tell we're all engaged together, but there's an agreement that we're saying these words together even though I'm the only one saying them. Does that make sense? I think that's what's happening here. It's unlikely that they're reciting this from memory together with one voice but they're still doing it together. They're still homothymidon. He does, yeah. I, I, if I go a couple months without horse from the back, I bring it up to him. Like, I miss it. Get it with for sure. Great, great, uh, affirmation. Yeah, it, it, it makes you realize that you're doing this together. Yeah, for sure. If we seek him, we need each other. And so I need you. And we need to be together in this. That's the first perspective of this passage. So let's get back to the prayer. Before we examine this prayer in Acts 4 any further, we're going to pretend that Shane is offering a communion meditation. um, And we're going to recite the Lord's Prayer together, which Shane has us do every time he does communion, and which Shane, I think, is awesome. I love that you do that. The Lord's Prayer from Matthew 6 is called such because it's the template that our Lord gave us for approaching the Father. It's not a secret handshake. It's not a magical formula of words put together to get your prayers heard. It's it's more of an attitude than a formula for seeking the will and blessing of the Almighty. It's a template. The version we're all familiar with, the one that Shane awesomely gets us to recite when he does communion, adds to the end of it, because this isn't in Matthew 6. But it adds, thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I have no problem with that being added, even though it's not in Matthew 6. Because it's A, totally true, and B, totally awesome. It is a cool way to end a prayer. It, it, it contributes to what we're going to look at here. But, before we go any further, let's say the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And deliver us from evil, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. I looked over it three times, and I still forgot a line. Anyway, that's the Lord's Prayer. Well, Most of it. Sorry about that. Again, Jesus is not instructing us to pray exactly like this every time we pray. He's not saying when you pray, you have to pray these words, obviously. Because there's all kinds of recorded prayers of Jesus and his followers that look nothing like this prayer. There are different prayers for different purposes, obviously. Not that there's anything wrong with reciting sacred words. When I would have those meals at the Hoopmer's place that I mentioned earlier... I knew that we would be saying the Lord's Prayer before the meal, and then after the meal, Andrew would be saying a different prayer. That's just what I expected, and I looked forward to the reciting of the Lord's Prayer. It's good to do that. There's nothing wrong with committing Scripture to memory as an act of obedience. It's helpful, and it's useful. But, however, as I mentioned, this prayer is a template. It properly prepares our hearts for communicating with our Creator, which is as simple a definition of prayer as I can offer. Communicating with your Creator. That's all prayer needs to be. It's all it is, ever, no matter how fancy or how simple the words are. And so, therefore, probably not surprisingly, if you examine the prayer in Acts 4, you will find that it aligns nicely with the framework of the prayer in Matthew 6. Our prayer in Matthew 4 follows the template of the Lord's Prayer. How so? Well, let's look. Number one, both begin with a proper address of the Father, describing his un- divine uniqueness and his holy character. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed is just a Shakespeareish way to say holy. Your name is holy. In Acts, in this prayer we have here of the believers in Acts 4, God is addressed as sovereign Lord who has made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. This is very Old Testament-y language. It spans the law. In Exodus 19, there's a prayer like this. In the historical books, in Nehemiah 9, there's a prayer like this. In the books of poetry, Psalm 146, which we read this morning, has a a portion of it that reads just like this. And the prophets, Isaiah 42, has a prayer just like this. So this is very connected and rooted in their sacred literature, which is how any prayer should be. So sovereign... They, they call him sovereign since he is in absolute control, which would have been a tremendous encouragement to those suffering in his name. To call the one you're, fo- you're following sovereign means that they are absolutely in control. And if you know what you're going to go through, because your sovereign Lord promised you would go through these trials and suffering, then it would be an incredible encouragement to know that he knows this and is in control of that. It might also make you shake your fist at him a little bit and say, if you're in control, why? But that's a matter of perspective. We'll get to that in a bit. So they address him as sovereign because he's in control. They address him as Lord because he bears authority and he deserves allegiance. In fact, the word here translated Lord in Acts 4 um, isn't the usual Kyrios, which is the usual title given to Jesus and to God in the Greek, Curios is like a political title. So, like Caesar is lord, right? Here it's not curios, rather, it is despotes, which should sound familiar. The English word despot is derived from this word, and despot is not a nice word. What is a despot? A dictator, right? A tyrannical leader who abuses his people to get what he wants is kind of our understanding of what a despot is. Interesting that that's the same word used here of, of Jesus, of God. Why? Well, despot refers to a master-slave relationship. It then became in English a tyrannical um, dictator. But it, a despot was a master in a master-slave relationship. A despotes is one with absolute authority to act however he wants and treat his subjects however he wants. That's what a despotes is. In other words, those who lift up their voices in prayer begin by addressing the fact that he is sovereign, he is in control, and they are his slaves, not servants, which is a nicer title, slaves. They are slaves to their Lord. And he can treat them however he wants to treat them. He can treat us however he wants to treat us because he is in absolute control and he is absolutely despotes, master, Lord, he can do whatever he wants. We, I think a lot of times we forget this about the man, person, being thing that we're praying to. That he can do whatever he wants. And we think, you will do what I want. Well, we are the slaves. He is the master. He will treat us in whatever fashion he wants. Now that sounds incredibly harsh and discouraging. Again, I'll address it. It's just a matter of perspective. So he is sovereign, he is Lord. And then, to emphasize this absolute power, they extend the intro to their prayer to cover his role as creator. Not just creator, creator of what? It's the same language as Genesis 1. Creator of heaven, earth, the sea, and all that is in it. Things above, things below, and the sea. In other words, perhaps you could extend this to be the supernatural world that we cannot see. The natural world that we are a part of and can, well, we're part of the supernatural world too, but the natural world we can that is tangible, that we can feel and see and touch. And chaos. Whenever you see sea as a symbol in Jewish writing, it is usually a symbol of chaos. Of forces beyond their control. Violent, reckless, aggressive forces that no one can tame except the creator. That was true even in the creation story. That's true in Job. The sea is this portrait of Chaos, you know, like Rome, like the Jewish understanding of Rome, or like the Sanhedrin to Jesus. Chaos, violent, untamable force, or something like disease and death, or being medically incurable, unable to walk for 40 years, things that are out of our control. Chaos, things that make the world look like it's not intended to look. There's only one master of those things. There's only one creator of the seas and all the chaos that it represents. But, and here's the key to all of this, sovereign, Lord, creator. As always, even in the very beginning of things, even in Genesis 1, he wields these powerful titles in a way that brings love and redemption to his feeble and wayward creatures. And that's you and me. It's a treat to be a slave in the house of a despot like him. It's a comfort to have a king like Jesus reign sovereign over our lives. It is life as life is intended for us to know our creator who formed us and continues to form us with delight and with love, even in suffering. In fact, often because of suffering and through suffering, it is an honor to know him as all these three things. This is the first level of similarity between the Lord's Prayer and the prayer of Acts 4, and it's the first glimpse into their good perspective they ascribed unto their god titles of authority that reminded them a how powerful he was b how caring he was and c how small they were that is the proper perspective to any prayer you ever give know who he is and know who you are he is very powerful he is very mighty he is sovereign lord and creator but he uses those titles to bring us love to bring us redemption to save us and also to know how small and undeserving we are. So that's the first similarity. The second similarity between the two prayers has to do with the priority of their requests. What do we want more? Do we want more good things for ourselves or good things for him and his kingdom? Which is the priority for us? Before ever uttering a word of personal need or desire, Jesus in Matthew 6 and the church in Acts 4 first illustrate the proper perspective On why we are here in the first place. What is our purpose? The first request made in Jesus' prayer, in the Lord's prayer, is tellingly, may your kingdom come and your will be known and experienced in earth just as it is in heaven. That is the first request they make. That the kingdom come to earth and that his will be known and shared and experienced. In other words, may you get what you deserve before we ask for things we don't deserve. May our focus be on your kingdom and your will, not our own lives or our own desires. In other words, may he get the glory before we get the bread. That is our first priority and first perspective. May he get the glory before we get the bread. What what a challenging statement to make. You really have to know who he is and who you are to offer that prayer. Because most of the time when we pray, it's because we have something we want or need. But before we even begin to bring those wants and needs to him, we have to start by by realigning our priorities. So does Acts 4 share this perspective? Yes, indeed it does. By connecting the opening words of Psalm 2 to the crucifixion of Jesus, the church makes a direct connection to God's guiding plan and glorious will. We see the kerygma again, the, the basic message of the apostles. We see the kerygma, we see the historical nature of Jesus and the shared blame of humanity. This is what it says, these are the opening words of Psalm 2 that they quote here in Acts 4. Why were the nations so angry? Why did they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepared for battle, the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. And then the company of believers goes on to say, in fact, this has happened here in this very city. For Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant, whom you anointed. But everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. The church declares that, yes, even here in this very city that they are praying in, humanity gathered together, and this is not homothymidon. This is a different word for together. But we're supposed to contrast the believers being together and seeking God, and the people, the nations, the worlds, the rulers, the kings being together against Jesus. There's a togetherness to both, but only one is true, genuine, of one accord, and that's the believers. But anyway, the church declares that here, humanity gathered together against Jesus, the holy and anointed one. The kings of the earth are represented by Herod, the king of Judea. The gathered rulers indicates Pilate and Herod being united by their condemnation of Christ. Remember, Pilate and Herod, they hated each other until the crucifixion of Jesus brought them together. Then they were friends forevermore. That's what it says in Luke. So they are gathered rulers. The peoples and the nations are represented by the Jews and the Gentiles. By the way, the phrase used in Psalm 2, why do the Gentiles rage? is a really great image. And the image, the word used for rage, is of a rearing horse bucking against the reins, of kicking and fighting and neighing and chomping at the bit and wanting to be free from its master. And I read a really great quote in in one of my commentaries that the raging Gentiles um, will even themselves one day have to be subdued by the master. He is at the reins, and one day they will be subdued. They can rage and fight against him and kick against him all they want, but one day they will be subdued. And that is the point of quoting Psalm 2 with the raging Gentiles and the peoples gathered against the Christ. That is how it connects to Jesus' command to seek the kingdom and God's will before ourselves and our own wills. That all of the foolish, vain, and rebellious planning by the enemies of Jesus just resulted in the fulfillment of his will anyway. Right? That, that's the paradox... They were in control of Jesus' life, and they got him murdered. But all that showed was that God was ultimately in control. His plan, the plan of salvation got rolling because they thought they were in control, and they crushed Jesus. They weren't in control at all. They pursued their own selfish desires out of fear and pride and ignorance, and still God's kingdom came. Still God's will was done. That's the second crucial perspective of the early church that they had when encountering suffering. They understood that the most important thing was to be aligned with his will within his kingdom. They understood that the most important thing was to be aligned to his will within his kingdom. Seek ye first the kingdom of Chris Lance? No, you vain and ignorant fool. Seek ye first the kingdom of God as his slaves. Whether you are on his side or not, whether you are raising crosses or being crucified on them, his will shall be done you might as well be on the winning side, even if it means enduring trials and hardship and pain. That's why they quote Psalm 2, to show that no matter what, God's will will be done. No matter how they kick against him, his will will be done. He still has the reins. So you might as well be on the victorious side. So that's the second connection between the Lord's Prayer and this prayer. The third. Now, in all of this, I've made it clear what we seek first. I hope I've made that clear we seek him and his will and his kingdom. Now, that is not to say that your desires and your hopes and your needs are unimportant to the Father. But notice something. We don't request bread until we request his kingdom first. The early church acknowledged this as well. Finally, in, of the passage we read, Acts 4:23 to 31 after 94 Greek words of prayer, totally focused on him, I counted each one, After 94 Greek words focused on him and his will and his kingdom, the believers finally get to their petition. They finally get around to asking him what they came to him to ask. And that request is still only 21 Greek words long. And it still has Jesus' glory in mind. Not their own, not their own benefit. So they spend all this time praising him, realigning to his kingdom and to his will, and then finally they get to what they want. And what do they want? They want his glory. They, well, let's read what they want. Verse 29. And now, O Lord, hear their threats and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. The believers don't pray for the threats to be taken away. They don't ask to be pain-free and comfortable. They don't ask to skirt their responsibilities and dilute their sacrifice and skip over their suffering. That's what I would ask for. They're being in prison for the first time. The first thing I would ask the Father for is, God, I don't want to go to jail. Help us not go to jail. Help us to not be crucified like you were. Don't you think if you're being honest, that'd be the first thing you'd pray for as well? Not these people. Not filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, the only thing they ask for as they encounter persecution for the first time is boldness. Not boldness to endure. Not boldness to put up with their suffering but a boldness to use their suffering to proclaim him as they endure. In all things, they are focused only on his will. Even in their suffering, they don't ask to be pain-free. They don't ask to endure suffering. They know the suffering's coming. They already know that God's presence is with them in the Holy Spirit. They already know that God's will is guiding them. They already know that he is in control. They already know that he loves them completely and loves those to whom they are being sent as witnesses, completely. Therefore, what they ask is that God would empower them to speak boldly in their time of suffering, that that they would be empowered to perform miracles, that his healing hand would perform signs and wonders in order for his name to be praised and his people to be saved. That's what they ask for. In the face of an oppression that in just three short chapters, we're going to meet Stephen. And you, you know what happens to Stephen. He's the first martyr. That's just in three chapters. Pretty soon, the lives of followers of Christ will be taken. They know this. They're not naive to the fact that persecution is coming and it will be intense. And so, in the face of oppression, they ask only for one selfless thing the strength and boldness to continue making Jesus Christ known to all. What a beautiful and Christ like perspective. What a challenge for us comfy Christians who think that an angry Facebook message is the definition of persecution. What a slap in the face of those who think that not selling cheeseburgers to gay people is taking a stand for truth. What a motivator for those who are too timid to share our hope because we might seem silly or old-fashioned or unlikable. The only need that they had for themselves was the need for boldness and a willingness to serve him more wholeheartedly. Our... Western church, we are pathetically shallow in our understanding of what suffering is. It's ridiculous. We think that suffering has something to do with finances. We think that suffering has to do with people liking us or reputations. Those are all things we're called to crucify, to nail to a cross. Those are not important things to followers of Jesus. When those things are damaged, our reputation Are people liking us? We should expect that. We should expect the message that we bring to chafe against the world and for them to not enjoy that. We were promised this. We know this. We spent chapters 9 through 19 of Luke, which was like a year and a half, studying exactly that, the cost of discipleship. And so it's refreshing for me, who is just as ignorant, who is just as comfortable who is just as willing to point fingers at the world rather than myself. It's really refreshing for me to hear these words of the early church and see how focused they were on their Lord and Master. The only need they had for themselves was the need for boldness and a willingness to serve him more wholeheartedly. That was their daily bread. What a refreshing perspective for those who endure suffering. Now, this is not, I belittle the suffering of the Western church, because it deserves to be belittled, honestly. But that's not to belittle your suffering. That's not to say you aren't grieving, you aren't mourning, you aren't feeling lonely or depressed or whatever it is you're going through. And you are all going through something. And so am I. We are all going through something. I'm not belittling that. The father does still ask his children to come to him with their requests. It is still okay for you to read the Psalms and recite the Psalms to him and say, where are you? Help me. You are my rock of refuge. I need you. I'm suffering in these ways. Help me to endure. Do still pray those things. Every human endures suffering. It's part of the curse of the fall. It's part of what it means to be human. You will suffer. You will toil. But here's what I'm suggesting. Boldly present your request to your Father, but present your request to Him humbly and with the desire to see Him glorified above all other desires. And oh, by the way, do you think God heard their communal prayer? Absolutely He heard their prayer. And He answered their prayer. He makes His presence known through an earthquake, just as He did on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, just as He did during the call and cleansing of Isaiah in Isaiah 6. Often our God speaks in whispers, not whirlwinds or earthquakes. That's the lesson that Elijah found out in 1 Kings. But sometimes... Sometimes he does rock our foundation in a way that leaves no doubt to the question of whether or not he's hurt us. As in the day of Pentecost, the arrival of the Holy Spirit, God confirms his presence with power and he answers their requests. As verse 31 says, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to declare the word of God with freedom of speech. Hey, isn't that exactly what they asked for? This earthquake comes and they begin speaking boldly. And what was their one request to the Father? To speak boldly. He answers their prayer immediately. He gives them what they ask for, what they need, so that his kingdom can be advanced. Boldness to speak. Sounds like God is granting them their request. Why? Why does God give them what they ask for? Because of, it's in his will. Well said. Because of their selflessness. Because of their desire to see Jesus glorified and not themselves. Because that is his will. And his will will be done, whether we like it or not. They had the proper perspective. So in conclusion, because I know this is going long, but in conclusion, so you can perk up your ears, the title of the sermon was that the believers were united together in looking to him. They looked to him with their eyes closed. To find him, they had to empty themselves and close their eyes to really see him. Just like the blind man in Luke 19 He was blind, but he saw Jesus for who he really was. That's true for us as well. Their prayer, the prayer of the believers, is a beautiful reminder to each of us about the proper perspective we need to have at all times. Whether we grieve and suffer and hurt, or whether we celebrate and praise and give thanks. And really, we should be doing all those things together anyway. No matter what we go through, our perspective is crucial. We can either see the ugly side, the negative side, the butt-crack side of following Jesus. We can see the hardships, the sacrifice of self, and the denial of our own vain pursuits. And we can see those as negative things. Or we can look this beautiful gift in the face and laugh with it and learn with it and grow together with it. And we can see those same hardships as an opportunity to bring him glory. We can see the same self-sacrifice as a down payment on a hope that surpasses all fear and doubt and pain. We can see that denial of our own vain pursuits as a reconfiguration of our heart, soul, mind, and strength towards a truly rewarding pursuit of our Father's desires. Through it all, we can see a community that loves us and accepts us and lifts our voice together towards Him. And I'm thankful that I have you to do that with. And most of all, more than any of this, because the ultimate goal of all, all of this is this next thing. Most of all, we see a sovereign Lord and loving creator who unravels his will and unveils his kingdom for us, even as we suffer for his holy name. That's if we're fortunate enough to suffer for his holy name. And if that's not a brand new perspective on life, I don't know what is. We are going to pray and then sing Seeky First, because really, Seeky First is all of this sermon in a three-minute song. (laughs) It could have just done that instead of... But I'm going to pray, and then we'll sing. Father, help us to seek you and your kingdom first. You are good and glorious. You are powerful and mighty. And we know that you use your power and your goodness to further your kingdom and to bless us, your followers. We know that we don't deserve those blessings. But Father, I pray that you would help us to seek you and your kingdom above all other things. Help us to lay aside ourselves to pursue you. Help us to see hardships and suffering as another opportunity, a powerful opportunity to bring you glory. You are good and you are worthy of that glory. And so I pray that as we leave here today, we would know that we are united together in you. And I pray that that unity would give us strength to boldly proclaim you and make you known. Father, uh, thank you for the blessing of suffering, that it builds endurance and builds faith and builds character and helps us to relate to you, Jesus, all the more. We love you, Jesus. And as we sing this last song, pray that we would mean it, that our hearts would really seek you above anything else. We pray this in your powerful name, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Thank you.